What's up, everybody? Good to be back up here with you guys. Again, my name is Cole. If we haven't met or if you are new here, um, I always like to start out with a little bit of a personal update of things that have been going on, on in my life. And I don't know if any of you guys in this room um, heard the big news about Anoka, Minnesota. It's my hometown. Has anybody heard? Uh, recently, as of this week, uh, the largest pumpkin ever grown in the world is from Anoka. Won the Guinness Book of World Records. Thank you, yep. Which is especially big news because my hometown is the Halloween capital of the world. So it really only seems fitting that that would be the case. So like I said, I always like to start with a little bit of a personal update. Um, so, you know, this time of year, a lot of stuff going on. Pumpkins being grown, Halloween being celebrated. One of the things that I think about a lot with this time of year is, is often the time when a lot of people are getting sick. And I don't mind getting sick, but what I do absolutely hate is throwing up, like puking. Like I haven't thrown up since probably like fourth grade, which was like 35 years ago. Um, just kidding, I'm not that old. Anyways, hate throwing up. Uh, if anybody around me is throwing up, I don't want to feed into fear culture, but I do like try to avoid them because I'm like, ooh, hate that feeling, that feeling of uh, you know not having control. Um, so I kind of walk around feeling stressed out. Even if I feel fine, there is like this sickness around me that's seeking to ruin my day. And so, you know, that is one of the things that's going on this time of year. Here's the reason why I say that. So we're continuing on in our series in. Colossians, and Paul up until this point has been talking a lot about how well the Colossian church is doing. He's talking about his prayers for them. He's talking about these like mysteries of Christ. We had that Christ hymn a couple weeks ago, then last week, talked about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's saying, you guys are doing great. Keep it up. Keep going. But then where we're going to be tonight, Paul shifts into a warning. And the warning that Paul shifts into is that there is a sickness that is around the Colossian church. It's not in the Colossian church quite yet, but it's around them. And it's not physical, it's spiritual. And it doesn't just want their bodies, it wants their souls. It seeks to take their souls, to drive them away from Jesus. And that sickness that Paul begins to warn them about the symptoms of what it looks like, what we need to know, is this really nefarious false teaching that had been going around in the early church and obviously isn't too far away today because false teaching never is too far away. And it sounds spiritual, this teaching, but it's actually something that leads to death and is grounded in worldliness. It's not something that ultimately is eternal. It's not from God, Paul, loves the Colossian church, and so he warns them out of that love because he also knows that they love Jesus, and he doesn't want to see them get driven away from their love. And everything that Paul says to the church is still just as much of a warning today because God's word is living and active, and there are still teachings that seek to drive us away from Jesus now, so we need to heed Paul's 
warning. We need to cling to Christ, and we need to not let this sickness seep itself inside of us. And so what we're going to see tonight in Paul's warning is we're going to see five ways to shipwreck your faith. Five ways to shipwreck your faith, breaking away from my traditional three points. So hopefully it doesn't get too crazy up here. So we're going to Colossians 2, starting in verse 4. We're going to go at this a little bit at a time. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. So Paul says this, I'm saying this, so what we talked about last week, talking about the mysteries of Christ, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So Paul had just gotten done giving this really, really sweet proclamation of God's glory, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and he wants them to understand the mysteries of Christ. It's something that Paul repeatedly talks about his prayer for them, that they would understand these things. Why is that? Well, verse 4, Paul says, I'm saying this so that you won't be deceived. And deceived by what? Deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. They sound reasonable. They make sense to people who would hear them. And then he goes on to praise their faith in Christ and their faithfulness to him in verse 5. So what is Paul saying here? Well, first we see Paul is saying that they need to know who Jesus is. And specifically, they need to know who Jesus is to them. And we're going to be asking the question why a lot as we're looking through Paul's uh, warnings tonight. So why is that? And I think that it's because, and Paul even tells us this, these things that they are hearing sound logical, right? They seem to make sense. And here's what's important to know, right? The Colossians were reasonable people, just like We are reasonable people. They reasoned and they thought and they contemplated things and they had reasons for what they believed and they heard things and they decided whether or not they were going to believe that. Just like we do today, they weren't Neanderthals who never thought about anything. They're people who think like humans always have. And what's true is that reasonable things make sense to reasonable people. So if they're hearing arguments that sound reasonable then they are going to be susceptible to falling into those arguments because they make sense to them. So if there's a message that's contrary to Christ that came to them, but it sounded like it made sense, right? It was subtle, it was cunning, it was a lie. They would be tempted to believe it. And the temptation would be to trust the cunning lie that had come their way rather than to trust the king of the universe who created all things and who all things were created for. We saw that in the Christ hymn a couple weeks ago. And this is the first way to shipwreck your faith that we're going to see tonight, is to have more faith in your intellect than you have in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. So I think about uh, my childhood best friend, his name 
is Brandon. Um, we were like super tight growing up since like middle school, um, did all the same sports, did all the same things, and uh, we were super close. So if any of you guys know my story, I didn't grow up going to church. Brandon did grow up going to church, and so when I became a Christian, we just talked about a lot of stuff together. So Brandon was very involved. Brandon went to the University of Wisconsin and began to study physics. He's like the smartest dude that I know, and began to ask a lot of questions about his faith. And at first, I wasn't too concerned about it because I was like, dude, we can talk about this. You know, I love talking about this stuff, so let's talk about it. And we had a lot of great conversations. But what continued to happen, and Brandon eventually, you know, is now at the University of Indiana. He is getting his PhD in astronomy. He's a genius. So he, he understands and tells me about things that are going on in the universe that I have no idea. And so much of it is like over my head. I'm like, dude, that's crazy that you hear these things. But when he was asking questions about God, what I started to notice was that it seemed like he was looking for a reason to not believe him. In other words, it seemed like Brandon was looking for God to owe him an explanation. Right? Brandon was putting his faith in what he solely could comprehend. And Brandon would tell me things like, you know, we know that there's millions of planets out there and you know, from what we can tell, there's not a single planet out there that has life like ours, but that's not compelling enough for me to believe that God made this intentionally. And I'm like, dude, what? That's crazy. Like, did any of you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. And so he's telling me this, and I'm like, you have blinded yourself by your worship of your own understanding of God, of a divine being. When Brandon heard arguments that sought to challenge what God said, arguments that concluded that God couldn't exist, rather than seeking Christ to lead him through those questions and those things he was trying to understand and to strengthen his faith, he began to think that God owed him an explanation. And so when Brandon couldn't get God to do that, when Brandon couldn't get God to submit to Brandon's will, he decided that he didn't want anything to do with him. And he said, I don't believe in any of this anymore. In Colossians 2, so these verses just before where we started tonight, uh, verse 2 through 3, Paul says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God is not opposed to knowledge and seeking understanding. What God is opposed to is being our puppet who does what we tell him to do when we tell him to do it. God delights to reveal mysteries and things that we don't understand to us. We see that all the time in the Bible. But we are not God. God is God. And he doesn't owe us anything. So be wary if your faith is grounded in your own logic rather than grounded in the God who gives all understanding and wisdom. Paul is warning the Colossians and us that the false teaching 
that's out there, it sounds reasonable, but the reality is that they are cunning lies, every single one of them, and the only way to combat them is to have a faith that is grounded first in Christ, not in ourselves, not in our brains, not in our intellect. That's the first warning. So continue on. Verse 6, <clears throat> Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So the first thing that Paul exhorts or commands or says that they should do after warning them about the coming reasonable arguments is this. He says, keep doing what you're already doing. Which seems a little weird, right? You would think you'd be telling them to do all these other things. But no, Paul says, keep doing what you are already doing. Keep walking with Christ. Keep abiding in him. Keep being built up and established him in, in him. And remember what you were taught. Just as you were taught. Keep doing those things. And always remember to be thankful for your salvation. We should be people overflowing with gratitude. So why is the first command that Paul gives here to the Colossian church to combat this false teaching is to keep doing what they're already doing? Why would Paul say that? Because what they had been doing was having faith in Christ and walking with him. Paul says to keep walking with him, to keep clinging to Christ and being near to him, and they had an awareness of their need for him and having gratitude. Paul says, keep doing that. And why that's important is because the false teaching that Paul sees coming their way. They don't really know about it yet, but Paul knows about it because he's seen it in other churches. And that false teaching, as we'll see a little bit later in this chapter, was that their standing and our standing before God, right? If we are good in God's sight, if we're bad in God's sight, was entirely dependent on what we did, right? If you want to be in good favor with God, then you have to do these certain things. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. To make it to heaven, they had to perform certain acts, and we'll get to some of those later. And the message coming their way was that, yes, they receive Jesus by faith, but they keep Jesus by their works. They keep Jesus by what they do, and we get that. Don't we? We receive Jesus with joy when we get saved or we start coming to Salt Company and we start being around other Christians and things are going great. We're learning, we're growing, we're seeking the Lord. But then a little bit down the road, maybe we see people around us that are a little bit more impressive Christians, right? They read their Bibles more than us. They pray more than us. They have bigger C groups than us, they have more scripture memorized than us, they always have the right thing to say, everybody is always impressed by them, they get the shout outs in sermons, they get the shout outs and all this stuff, everybody knows they are the good Christian, and to top it off, maybe they even go overseas, so they're like super Christians then, right, quote unquote, that is not me giving an official endorsement that people who go overseas are super Christians, but I want to imagine, why do you imagine, I don't think that's far off for us to have experienced, right? Is that sort of like comparison? And, and what I think begins to happen when we do that, right? When we leave that kind of initial joy of our salvation and start looking around at how other people are following Jesus and comparing ourselves to that, 
as we begin to view our standing before God by what we are doing rather than what Christ has already done. Right? What magnificent spiritual things are doing. And that's the second way to shipwreck your faith. It's to start thinking about what you can do for God. Right? There's that old uh, JFK quote. I hope I don't butcher it. When I was thinking about it earlier, I kept butchering it in my mind. It was, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Right? We almost start to have like this like JFK theology of like, ask not what God can do for you, but ask what you can do for God. And that's almost how we start to act, right? It's like, if God is pleased with me, it's because I did enough good things for God to be pleased with me. And what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that our relationship with God starts and is sustained and is established and goes into eternity, not by what we have done, but by what Christ has done for us. It is all about Jesus and what he did. It's absolutely, and I want you to hear me on this, it is absolutely God's will that we would be obedient to him and that we would seek joyful obedience, that we would fight sin, that we would hate our sin, and that we would seek to live in the light. But God's will is that that obedience to him would come from a place of faith and gratitude and never, ever, ever from a place of earning and thinking that you can do something to make yourself right with God. Jesus loves us way too much to leave us to that. So that's what Paul means when he says that we must continue to walk in Christ. We're not like, you know, baby birds who, once we get to a certain age, we get kicked out of the nest, and now we need to start flying. You know, like, we don't get kicked out of that nest of grace to where now we need to live our lives without it. The gospel only gets better with age for the Christian. The longer we are Christians, the more beautiful that gospel of grace alone through faith alone becomes. So that's the second warning, but now we're going to go kind of to the meat of this little section of Paul's warning. Verse 8 is where we're going to start here. <clears throat> Paul says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world <clears throat> rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us, and he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Paul again warns the Colossians about the teaching that is around them, tells them to not be taken captive, but this time he's a little bit more blunt about what those teachings are. He says that those teachings are empty, they are lies, 
They're based on earthly things that don't matter rather than heavenly things that do actually matter. And why does Paul say it like that? Why does Paul just kind of like be so blunt with it? I think because since these are worldly false teachings, the world promises us a lot of things, doesn't it? Like the world tells us that it can give us a lot if we give ourselves to it. It promises that if you live by the world, if you sell yourself for the world, then it has more to offer you than Jesus does. It can offer you a higher knowledge, right? Like you can be more enlightened if you follow this logic and wisdom of the world because Christianity is for people who don't think. And that was certainly true for the Gnostics and Judaizers and the Stoics and all these other false teachings that were going around in Paul's day. Um, worldly philosophy, it can offer you a higher pleasure if you just do whatever you want and you don't worry about the boundaries that God has set in place for our flourishing, whatever those boundaries are in the Bible. Uh, and it ultimately asks that question of, did God really say? And it produces in us this lack of belief that what God says is actually good. So Paul has to come out strongly against these teachings, not only because they're lies, but because of what they actually promise and what they actually deliver. So um, I think this was maybe like a month ago. I, maybe it was three weeks ago. I don't know. Probably doesn't really matter for the illustration. I come home open up my mail, love getting mail whenever I get it. And in it, I have a check from the American Lottery Association. I've never heard of this before. I don't know what the American Lottery Association is, but it has my name addressed on it. So I open up the letter, and it's a check for like $5,000. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 5,000 bucks. And then so I'm looking at it, but I'm like, uh, it came from Canada. I don't know if this is real. And Marissa's like, there's no way that's real. Like, don't do anything with that check. And I'm like, ah, you know, whatever. So look it up. It's obviously a scam. But the aim was that, like, you would get this check and you would cash it, and then the people who sent you that scam would have access to all your ba bank account information. So if you get one of those checks in the mail, now you know what they're trying to do. And then they would just, like, steal everything that you have because now they had access to, like, all your wealth and whatever, I guess. You know, probably none of us here have wealth, but the little amount of money we do have. <laughs> um, so, so anyways, so I got this fake check. And I think, I think here's, here's why I tell that story. Is the third way that we can shipwreck our faith is to believe that the world can give you something that Jesus can't. Right? To believe that the world can give you something that Jesus can't, every single thing that the world promises to give you, Jesus gives you in even greater measure. And actually, the world can't fulfill any of those promises. It wants to take everything from you. That's what sin wants. That's the aim of sin. And where the world promises authority and status, Paul reminds us in verse 10 that Jesus is head over all authority, and his spirit dwells in the believer. And where the world tells us that what matters is how you are externally, right? Like what you do externally. In Paul's day, it was circumcision, which obviously wouldn't be 
fun, and in our day. Uh, and our day, like, the external thing, right, is just, like, if you're just a good person, right? Like, there's so many people we talk to that are like, you know, I think I'm going to be okay because I'm a good person. This person is a good person. Where the world tells us that what matters is how you are externally, we are reminded that Jesus came to deal with our hearts and what is going on internally because that ultimately is what matters. And where the world promises life, we are reminded that it's the sin that exists in this world that brought death in the first place. It's our sin that's in this world. And that Jesus, he came to bring us from death to life is what verse 13 says. World promises life, brings death. Jesus, is pro Jesus promises life, gives it to us through his death. And where the world promises freedom, claiming that what the Bible says is slavery, we see here that it's the world that actually seeks to take us captive in verse 8 and enslave us. And that the world wants us to remain in our sins with that overwhelming debt hanging over us, is what verse 14 says. Whereas Jesus took that debt and the obligation of death and hell, and he, na and he nailed it to the cross through his own death. He took that from us. Whatever philosophy it is that calls to you, whatever false teaching it is, it might be the same for some of us in this room, it might be different for some of us in this room, but we all have something in this world that's calling to us to take us away from Jesus and promising us life. If it's not what Jesus tells us in his word, then it's actually something that brings death. It's like that false check that I got in the mail. It might look great, but the second you go to cash it, it's going to try and take everything, and it will take everything. Don't believe the lie that this world can give you something that Jesus can't. That's Paul's third warning here. But Paul reminds us, as we continue on, that Jesus is the only one who truly satisfies. This pleasure we're looking for, the satisfaction that we're looking for, it is only found in Jesus. This is his response. Look at verse 16. Paul says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come, and the substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. And he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. So I won't keep you in suspense for the fourth way that we can shipwreck our faith. That fourth way is to add on to Scripture. Right? And maybe if I were to send in the points a little bit later, I'd maybe say add on or detract. Basically just change what God says is true in our minds. Um, and here's why I say that. Is so Paul talks about these food and these, like, festivals, this, you know, these laws that they were supposed to do that relate to old Jewish customs that were no longer necessary because Jesus had come, 
right? He says these things were just a shadow of what was, past tense, to come, talking about Jesus. So Paul's saying those things, they're, they're not necessary, those ceremonial laws. We don't need to worry about them because Jesus fulfilled all of them, and they were ultimately pointing to Christ. But then I want you to look at what Paul says in verse 18 through 19. Paul continues, and he says, but don't let anybody condemn you by their ascetic practices, which is basically, if you don't know what that means, it basically just means like punishing your body for the sake of like spiritual enlightenment or religious practice. So don't let anybody condemn you by that or by their hyper-spiritual practices. So here's what was happening in, in the world at this time. People heard the gospel and they effectively thought there is no way that to be a Christian is that simple. That all you have to do is believe and have faith one time and you're set for the rest of your life because God will keep you? That sounded ridiculous to them. So what they did, because they thought there's no way that could be true, is they started teaching things that Jesus never said because they doubted the sufficiency of what it was that Jesus said. They said this isn't enough, this can't be all that there is. They said that to be truly spiritual meant that you had to punish yourself because that brought a sort of higher enlightenment. And they said that to be truly spiritual meant that you had to have visions of angelic realms and all this stuff that Paul talks about and have this hyper spirituality. And I would guess that probably not too many of you guys in the room are struggling with those two particular things. Maybe. Who knows? You know, nothing new under the sun. But a couple of the things that I do see today that are this sense of like, is scripture actually sufficient? Is what Jesus says to us sufficient? Uh, number one, that feeling that we need to seek out suffering for our uh, faith to be legit. Right? Because the Bible talks a lot about like, be faithful through suffering, be faithful through hardships, seek the Lord through hardships. And we do see that through those hard times, people are brought closer to the Lord. But what the Bible doesn't say is that you should do that to yourself. Because if you are a faithful Christian, if you're following Jesus in all parts of your life, at some point, that suffering will come. You don't need to worry about it if it's not here right now. Praise God if it's not here right now. But we do kind of get that part of it, right? That kind of like we need to do something to like val validate our faith if we do this, this thing. But I think the second thing I'm thinking about too with this is that our faith in Christ should be led by our emotions and our experiences, right? And that's particularly strong, I think, in our culture, that if something in the Bible doesn't sit right with us, doesn't give us that warm, fuzzy feeling right off the bat, then we should just do away with it. Or if we aren't on an emotional high all the time, spiritually, then something is wrong. And so we need to chase that camp high all the time, or else our faith isn't legit. Here's what Paul is saying, is that those things, those things that say that faith in God, faith in Jesus and what he did isn't enough to save you, those aren't from God. Yes, we absolutely, we come to know Jesus more and he gets more beautiful to us. 
but we don't need to do things that are outside of what the Bible says to do that. God's word is always true to us. If you want to truly enjoy all that God has for you, then don't let go of Jesus and what he says. Don't let go of the head, like verse 19 says. And don't add to it and don't take away from it. So I want to you know, start to land the plane here. And to do that, we're going to read verse 20 through 23 as we kind of close out. These are our last verses of the night. Paul continues. He says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. You kind of see Paul's like sarcasm and irony here. Like, yeah, these things might sound good, but you know what? Everything is fake about it. Serious. Like, that is what Paul is saying here. What's true of the Christian in these verses is this, is that we live in, honestly, a pretty weird situation, right? Like, we, our lives were once a part of the world that we live in now. Before Christ, we were children of this world. We didn't know Jesus. We were still spiritually dead, the Bible tells us, but when we got saved, our citizenship, where we belong, transferred from this world to heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. We are part of God's kingdom. And suddenly, we were outsiders here. So the world that we live in isn't the world that we belong to, which is why Paul says that it makes no sense that you would still live like it. How can you live like you are citizens of a world that you do not belong to? It makes no sense. But that's the fifth way to shipwreck your faith. Is to forget that you're citizens of another world. To forget that your citizenship is in heaven with Jesus and his kingdom. And so what does that actually mean? Because that sounds great, but honestly... It's a little confusing, you know, if you just hear that. Uh, Paul says in verse 22 that to live like citizens of this world, and if you want to know what citizens of heaven look like, just do the inverse of what Paul is saying here. Um, Paul says in verse 22 that to live like citizens of this world means that you are gripped. Your life revolves around things that perish and that won't matter in the future by things that don't truly have any eternal significance. Citizens of this world get caught up by rules that say don't handle, don't touch, don't taste, right? They get caught up by rules. They get caught up with asking the question of what can I get away with? But citizens of heaven, citizens of Jesus' kingdom, they ask what's honoring to the king. They don't ask what can I get away with. They ask, how does my life honor, honor Jesus? Because that's what I want to do. And they're delighted to live like that. Citizens of heaven aren't interested in false humility and false religion or external appearances. Citizens of heaven are invited to eternal things, to care and be gripped by eternal things that matter. 
And I think that that gets to the heart of what Paul is saying throughout this chunk of his like warning that we've been talking about tonight. Is that the philosophies and the messages of this world, the ones in Colossae, the ones in Iowa City or Tiffin or North Liberty or Cedar Rapids or Mount Pleasant or wherever all the people in this room came from tonight, those philosophies that are of this world, they are constantly trying to get us to believe that what this world has to offer is better than what Jesus has to offer. But what Paul wants us to see is that every single worldly thing will pass away. 10,000 years from now, all the stuff that gripped us now won't matter if it isn't eternal. If it doesn't pass the eternity test or the death test, the way that we as God's people don't shipwreck our faith, ultimately what it breaks down to is to always dwell on Jesus. And that's, that's what we see throughout this chunk, right? Is like, just as you've been following Christ, these things are not from Christ. Love Jesus, pursue Jesus, hold on to the head. Remember what Christ did for you on the cross when he freed you from this world, when he freed you from sin and death, when he freed you from being gripped by things that don't matter. Remember Jesus. And don't get led astray by these other things. Jesus, the object of our faith, and the one that every single good thing is a shadow of, the one who died so that we could be freed from the fleeting promises of life. Guys, as we... The way that we don't shipwreck our faith is to have a faith that is ultimately and eternally grounded in Jesus. And if we do that, and anything that comes our way, that'll all get sorted out. Because we have remembered the one thing that was ultimately true. That Christ came to die for sinners. And that's us. <laughs> and that is such good news for us. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. Um, thank you that you give us warnings, that you care about us, to give us really, really cool uh, revelations about your mystery and your word um, and the things that are just so profound about you. Uh, but thank you also that you warn us against the fleeting and worthless things of this world that seek to take us away from you. God, thank you that your word is full of encouragement and joy and beauty and it's also full of Love that warns us from things that seek to kill us. Jesus, ultimately, if we could pray anything tonight, um, we pray that uh, we would be gripped by you. Um, Jesus, that our faith, where we look, what captures our attention, what we are holding on to is you. And Jesus, free us continually from any sort of affection to this world and fix our gaze on you so that we can actually love lost sinners in this world even better and so that we can glorify your name in this life and in the next. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Pray that you would just show us more of yourself. That's what we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.